0: Well, good morning, good morning, my name is Christian, I'm one of the elders here at Cornerstone, I get the uh, the opportunity to open up God's word with you this morning, and I don't know what it is about this topic, but this room is really quiet last Sunday and this Sunday. The reality is when we do talk about issues related to our sexuality, about God's purpose for our sexuality, his good intention for it, and yet the ways that we as sinful, imperfect people get it twisted in ways that twist so many other aspects of our life, we are talking about something that is inherently vulnerable Intended by God to be vulnerable. And so we can feel that way even this morning. But I do, as as Todd even mentioned, I, I, I think that there is such importance for us to consider God's intention for this important area of our lives and to be willing to make room for these kind of conversations together. So that's what we will seek to do again this morning. Um, if you um, have, haven't have been with us uh, uh, more recently, we've been working our way through the book of Matthew for the last year and a half or so, and I don't know where I'm at, but I'm not at the beginning of my slides. So if you wouldn't mind putting up that title slide for me, if we have it, if not, Basically, we've been working our way through Matthew. We have been um, looking at, uh, we got to about Matthew 19, where Jesus has asked a question about marriage and divorce, and from there, goes back to the beginning to talk about God's purpose for marriage in the beginning, but talk about this idea of sexual morality and adultery, the way that even the sexual nature in marriage can get twisted, and even about what are situations in regard to divorce and remarriage and singleness and so forth. And so what we really wanted to do was take some time to slow down and consider these important but vulnerable topics together, not only from the perspective of Matthew 19, but throughout scripture. And so that's what we've been doing. This is week three of kind of that mini series on marriage and sexuality and gender and so forth. Um, In the first week, Todd talked about God's initial, his good intention for marriage in the beginning. Last week, he talked about God's... God's intention for sexuality and the way that that gets twisted. And I'm going to continue with that same theme again this morning. God's good intention for sexuality and then the ways that we can get it wrong. But what does it look like for God to write us his grace to, as even Shannon was talking about, to transform us in these areas of our lives. And so what I want to do as we jump in, we'll be looking at two main passages this morning. One that's more negative from Romans 1. And another that's much more positive from 1 Thessalonians 4. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Romans 1. We'll be there in a couple of minutes. I just want to lay some groundwork for us first. Give us some big picture perspective. But we'll be in Romans 1 and then in 1 Thessalonians 4. But again, as Todd walked us through last week, oh, by the way, if you need a Bible, the ushers are bringing some and they'd love to put one in your hand. Um. As Todd was talking about last week, again, the the first thing that we want to say in regard to sexuality and the gospel is to acknowledge the goodness of it as God intended it. God had a good intention, a good design in creating our sexuality. And so even if that's an awkward idea for you to think about God and your sex life, it was his idea before it was yours. He had a good intention for it. He meant it for your good. Like many other gifts in our life, like knowledge and the ability to work in our very um, physical bodies and our relationship with others and the natural world itself, with all of the good gifts that God gives us, we as sinful humans who have rebelled against him can twist those things, can get them wrongly. And when we use God's good gifts wrongly, it does not lead to good, does not lead to blessing, but cursing. And I would say perhaps for many of us, maybe that is the native context that we think about when we think about our sexuality. It can even feel like a dirty topic. Or maybe even one of those things that we know we shouldn't do, but we do. All right, honestly, like when it comes to sexual sin, giving into temptation in sexual ways, it does bring a momentary pleasure, doesn't it? It brings a sense of excitement. And if you're going, I don't know, I'm not inviting you to explore that. But more just acknowledging a reality for so many of us. That there is, within our sinful nature, there is an, a, an electric thrill about getting away with something that we know is wrong. And sometimes, unfortunately, that's the initial place where we learn to connect, con- connect to our sexuality was going to for something that we knew was wrong and wow, that was exciting. But then you also realize how quickly that's filled in by feelings of guilt or shame, or especially if it's it's been an ongoing pattern in your life, just that feeling of foolishness and feeling trapped. Or maybe you felt like that at one time, and maybe perhaps for you, now you're at the point where you don't even feel feelings of guilt anymore because you've so seared your conscience and your mind that you're kind of numb to it. But you're not only numb to the guilt of sexual sin, you're also getting more and more numb to the thrill of it, which makes you chase more and more twisted ways to express your sexuality to the point where maybe for some of you in this room, sexual sin isn't even something that you, you pursue out of enticement, but out of enslavement. When we use God, God's good gifts wrongly, it twists us, doesn't it? Or maybe again, like Shannon was talking about get a bit ago, the twistedness that you've experienced isn't sexual things that you've done, but one, things that have been done to you that you did not want. And something that God intended to be so beautiful and bonding between a husband and wife and marriage instead is something that feels scary and unsafe to you. And what I want you to hear before we move any further, again, there is such hope in the gospel. There is such hope in what God has done for us through through Jesus to restore us, to heal us. To give us the ability to grow and to begin to steward, even power from the Holy Spirit to begin to steward our sexuality according to the good intent that God had. That's what I want to explore with you. But, but again, I want to stop and talk for a second about why this matters so much. What makes sex such a powerful part of our lives, whether for good or for bad? I think the reason why sex has such power in our lives is not because it's the most important thing in our lives. But it seems to me that God designed our sexuality to operate almost at the intersection of many important areas of our lives. It's like a Venn diagram, right? You ever seen those before where they're like, this circle has this thought, and this circle has this thought, and here's where they overlap and have common territory, I guess you could draw this big circle uh, um, diagram of a bunch of areas of our lives and see in some way sexuality functions right in the middle of them, which makes it powerful for good or for bad because it has the ability to influence so many different aspects of our lives. I mean, think about this for a second. Is sex physical? Yeah, clearly. God designed it to be. There is physical pleasure, physical allurement that God built into it. But it's much more than that. It's much more than just a physical act or physical attractions. Sex is intended by God to be relational. This is the way we put it in our doctrinal statement. We'll go here a couple of different times. That's not it either. Unfortunately, I think the numbering got out of whack. So there is one that says 0.5 on human sexuality. We'll see where we're at. Unfortunately, I apologize, guys. It was right when I was up there beforehand. Let me read it to you then. Slide five, uh, point five in our doctrinal statement on human sexuality says that human sexuality, which includes our sexual attraction, desires, and actions is a gift from God that's intended for the pleasure and union of one man and one woman within marriage and for the bearing of children. It is intended to be relational. It is intended to be a gift that husbands and wives get to regularly give to each other over the course of their marriage. It's intended to bind them closer together as one flesh. So understand that. Sex, because it's intended to be relational, if you are pursuing sexual acts, sexual pleasure, only for your own sake or even just by yourself, you are using it wrongly. It's physical, it's relational. It also intersects with the mental aspects of our lives. It affects us even at a chemical level. It even affects us spiritually. That's what Todd was talking about last week when he talked about sex as an act of worship. He took us to 1 Corinthians 6, um, 19, I believe it is. And if you, oh, are are we good now back there, guys? Let's see. Okay, yeah, 1 Corinthians, thank you so much. Appreciate that. He says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? We are temples of the Holy Spirit. In other words, we bring the third person of the Trinity, God himself, with us wherever we go. So where are you taking him? In what sort of context and activities and relationships are you taking the Spirit of God if you are a follower of Jesus? Are you operating in your sexuality in a way that accords with God's holy purpose and the Holy Spirit that he's put within you? That'll be a big idea we'll come back and talk more about in a few minutes. But the reason why I want to start and talk about the interconnectedness, that intersected reality of our sex lives is because I think even for me personally, this was something that took me a long time to realize. It took me a long time to wrap my head around. And the reality is, when we talk about the interconnectedness of sex, we haven't even gotten to making babies yet. The fact that God designed the sexual union of one man and one woman in marriage to bring about more people. Or when to talk about how interconnected it is, the reality is, if it weren't for sex, sex, none of us would be here. We are here because of God's intention for sexuality. But gosh, it is so much more than just some highly evolved impulse, some biological drive within us to pass along our genetic material to propagate our species. Again, it is designed by God to be this act of worship. And it's designed by God to interact with so many different aspects of our lives. Again, for me, I think as a young man, as a teenager, as a a young adult, I did, I think I bought into a a, a lie or at least definitely a a half-truth if there was much truth in it at all. That sexuality was just this isolated kind of set apart part of my life. And I would even think within my mind, I don't know if I ever actually had the the guts to say it, but I would say, you know what? As a kid who grew up in the church, came to know Jesus from a young age, it was like, I feel like in most areas of my life, I'm kind of doing okay. But man, when it comes to like sexual temptation and sin, that's just this one place where I feel really weak. And so because I bought into the lie that it was just this isolated, disconnected area of my life, I tried to handle it in isolation and disconnected from other relationships and other people. I kept it hidden from others. I tried to fight my sin on my own, and it took me a long time to realize how unrealistic that was and how unhelpful that was. That my temptation to be selfish and self-serving with my sexual desires wasn't isolated from the rest of my life at all. As a matter of fact, as I started to see, that theme of selfishness and self-serving was a part of all of my life. But I didn't see it because I kind of compartmentalized it in that way. But as I began to see it with the help of others who loved me and spoke truth to me, something really cool began to happen as I saw how selfish I was in all of life, not just this one area. And I began to seek to combat selfishness, whether it was in my sleeping habits, my eating habits, the way I used my time, the kind of entertainment I consumed. The more that I tried to actually fight selfishness there and learn to serve and consider others, it was amazing how a lot of those skills related directly to that sexual battle in my life in a way that I was like, oh, I totally just thought it was this segmented, set-apart thing. And that's why I share that with you, just on the, on the one hand, to say, look, when I talk about sexual brokenness, that is me, too. That is all of us. All of us battle with desires, attractions, and the choices to act on those that are contrary to God's good intention. And one of the most helpful things, unhelpful things we can do is isolate ourselves in the midst of this. Or to say, well, at least my sin's not as bad as that person's sin. But instead, even the purpose for a series like this is to create space for us as a church family to seek to honestly and hopefully appropriately talk about sex, talk about God's good intention, talk about the ways we get it wrong, help one another not fight this alone. Because also I think the, the benefits of holiness in our sexuality begins to play out in so many other aspects of our lives as well. So again, I I see sex, the the, the power of it coming from that way in which it it intersects so many aspects of our lives. But I don't want you to somehow misunderstand what I'm saying and say, well, because sex interlaps with so many areas of our lives, it must be the most important thing about us. It's not. Sex is a powerful force in our lives, but it's not all powerful. It overlaps with a lot of our lives, but it is not all important. Listen, don't miss this. This is so important where we're gonna go. The ultimate reality in your life and mine, more than our sexuality, however we view it, our gender, however we view it, our status as married or single or widowed or divorced or old or young or smart or whatever it is, the ultimate reality in all of our lives, around which all of life is meant to revolve, is God himself. He's the ultimate reality that we have to deal with. Do you believe me? To paraphrase something that John Piper wrote, he wrote a book called Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, which I remember reading at probably 17, 18 years old. And there was this one part in there where he talked about God as the sun at the center of the solar system, the one that all of life is meant to revolve around, the one who alone is massive enough in the greatness of who he is to hold the rest of our life in balance. But that when God is rejected as supreme, Nothing else that you try to put in his place is massive enough to hold your life in balance. And so everything does fall out of balance. If you try to make sex the most important thing in your life, your life will be disordered and your sexuality will be disordered. But if instead you see the God who made you as the one you were meant to love and serve with all of your life, if you seek to place him in his rightful place as the son at the center of your life, it will bring about balance and healing and wholeness, not all at once, but over time, simply because of how good and powerful our God is. I wanna walk through these couple of passages with you. We will spend less time in Romans 1 than we will spend in 1 1 Thessalonians 4. But the first one in Romans 1 talks negatively, both about how, when, what happens when God is rejected as that son at the center of our lives and the disorder it creates in all of life, especially our sexuality. And then the second one in First Thessalonians 4 is much more positive. It gives us hope that once God is placed in his rightful place, ongoing growth in holiness and balance and righteousness will take place in our lives. So let's go first. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Again, we could spend multiple weeks in this one. We're going to skim across the top. But I want you to see, again, the way that Paul here shows us what our main problem is, but then all the other problems that come from it. Here's where it starts. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. There is truth that is clear that we press down, that we shove into the closet, that we don't want to acknowledge. And what is that truth? Well, it's that what can be known about God is plain. God's made it plain. God has shown it to us. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that people are without excuse for doing what? What are we without excuse for doing? Look at the next verse, verse 21. For although they knew God, Although every person knows deep within them in some way who this God is that they have to do with. They can look at what God has communicated about himself in the natural world. And he says it's clear, clear enough to leave you without excuse for the way that though you know him, you neither honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We might think of those as ancient concepts. But again, the whole idea is this. The root problem there in verse 21, behind all problems we encounter in our world, in our own lives, in our own relationships, is that rejection, that refusal to acknowledge God to honor him and give thanks to him as that sun at the center of the solar system of our lives. So please hear me. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, there is no bigger problem going on in your life than that right there. The fact that at least up to this point, you have not acknowledged God as the one that you were created to know and serve and all of your life to revolve around. Your biggest problem isn't sex even if you acknowledge that there are problems in your sexuality. Your biggest problem is your denial of God as that rightful center of your life. That is why your sexuality is out of of balance, why all of life is. And again, because sex lies at that intersection of so many aspects of our lives, when God is denied and rejected as the Son, This is one of those planets in the solar system, if you will, in which we can really see the imbalance and the twistedness play out. Look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 24. Because people did not acknowledge him or give thanks to him, God gave them up. If that's what you want, this is where that path leads. God gave them up in the lust, the unbridled desires of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. I think that's a really important thing. The root problem is the failure to honor God as God, which leads to dishonoring the bodies that he gave us, that he had a good intention for giving us. The dishonoring of God leads to dishonor in our lives. The dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, not only dishonoring their, their bodies, but at that, that central part of who we are, at our desires, our will, our decisions, we seek dishonor. For women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Do you see the way when God is rejected, it leads to disorder in our sexuality? Please hear me on this. Again, there's so much more detail we could go into, but here's the main idea I want you to get. Sexual sin, in whatever form or variety it comes, is always sin against God, the one who designed you and gave you your sexual nature and gave you a good intention for how it's supposed to play out. When you go against that, you are always dishonoring Him. But sexual sin is always against others, even if they are willing participants with you in those actions. You hear me? Even if they are willing participants with you in those actions, you are still sinning against them by helping them to violate God's intention for their sexuality as well as yours. But if we stop reading here, we might think that sexual sin is just the worst kind of sin that there are. But the spiral, the downward spiral gets even worse as we continue in this passage. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, what's the root problem? The failure to acknowledge God for who he is. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. If that's what you want, here's where that path leads. To a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled not just with all manner of sexual unrighteousness, but with all kinds of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. He goes on to list to so many. Envy, murder, strife. Even there in verse 30, disobedience to parents. He says that is one of the most acute forms of the brokenness of sin is that kind of discord in our family relationships. You can see how negative this passage is. But again, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, Paul doesn't pull any punches right here in chapter one, talking about how bad sin has twisted us, because he's about to spend the next 15 chapters of Romans talking about how beautiful it is what God has done through his son Jesus to rescue us from our sin, to rescue us from our brokenness, to give us his spirit, to justify us, to sanctify us, to make us new. There is such hope, but that good news only sounds like good news to you if you know That you need it, and you see how desperately you need this rescue. So again, sex sits at this intersection of so many aspects of our life. That's what gives it its power. Give gives it its power, whether for good or for evil. But for all of us, our biggest problem is not sex. It's the breakdown in that central relationship with God, who made us, who gave us life, who even gave us sex to be a blessing. So again, if you have not yet turned and trusted in Jesus. I'm not just trying to be nosy about your sex life. That's not ultimately even the most important thing that I care about. I care about all of your life, which all of your life is intended to be lived under the good life-giving rule of Jesus. So if you have not yet come to Jesus, that's the first step you need to do. But if you have come to Jesus, if you have come to God by faith in Jesus, turned and trusted and followed him, then this means that all of your life, including your sexuality, must look differently now and will look differently now. That's what the second passage here in 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse one, is all about. We've looked at the negative side of this, the twistedness, the brokenness. Now let's talk about what God has done through Jesus and is actively doing in your life if you're a follower of Jesus through his spirit to heal and make you whole even in your sexuality. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 1. Finally then, brothers. Paul's kind of like me. He says finally and then he talks for a whole bunch more time. So I'm not saying finally yet. We're not wrapping up. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Just as you are doing that you do so more and more. He says, what's the main thing I tried to talk to you about how you ought to walk and to please God. That word walk is often used in the New Testament, not just to talk about really like what we do with our legs and our feet, but the whole posture of our life, our conduct as a whole in our life. And what does he say is to be the fundamental principle that we pursue, even in our sexuality, not our own pleasure, to please God. He says, the first thing you need to understand is this. As a follower of Jesus, you acknowledge all of your life, every aspect of your life, your waking moments and your sleeping moments are lived before the presence of God. Nothing is hidden from him. You couldn't hide it from him if you tried. Nor do you want to because you go, no, Lord, in all of my life and my conduct, I know there's so much more room for me to grow. There's repentance I need to do, but I want as an overall posture of my life to please you. So therefore, I'm not trying to hide things from you. I'm not also first and foremost consumed with what other people might see of me or think of me. What I might be able to hide from others. Lord, I want to live my life before you to please you. Then he comes to verse 3 and he says this. For this is the will of God. Anytime you're reading your Bible and you come across that phrase, this is the will of God, you should sit up. You should pay attention. You should go, this is important for me to hear. Many of us in our lives, this has been one of the big questions we've asked repeatedly in different seasons. Lord, what is your will for my life? But usually when we ask that question, we mean it in a very personalized, subjective, circumstantial sense. Lord, what college should I go to? What major should I pursue? What kind of career should I get? Who should I marry? Where should we live? Where should we retire? Not wrong to think in those ways. That's just not what Paul's talking about here in 1 Thessalonians 4. He's not talking about a personal subjective will of God, but he is talking about God's will, not just for you and me as individuals, but God's will for all of us who follow his son. And he says, this is what God's will for us is. Our sanctification, our sanctification, big Bible church word, what does it mean? The root idea of sanctification is holiness, to be holy, which the root idea of holy, another big Bible church word, is to be set apart, distinct, different. In scripture, whenever we see God sanctify something or someone, make something holy, it's because he has a specific purpose in mind for it. There was nothing different from the rocks that were used to build Solomon's temple than to build Solomon's house. But there was a different purpose for those stones that built the temple because that's where God would dwell among his people. There's a holy purpose to that building. The best definition of sanctification I've found comes from one scholar, a scholar, his name is Sinclair Ferguson, and he says this. To sanctify means that God repossesses persons and things that have been devoted to other uses, and have been possessed for purposes other than his glory. And he takes them into his own possession in order that they may reflect his glory. What is God's will for all of our lives who follow Jesus? It is to repossess and repurpose us for his own possession so that we might live in a way that displays his glory. And that includes in your sexuality. Now, again, we came across this idea of sanctification last week when Todd took us to 1 Corinthians 6, where he talks about this. He says, perhaps, there we go. He he lists out all these different types of sinful characteristics, lifestyles, which he says, if that is what defines your life, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I love that in verse 11. Maybe this brought great hope to you last week when Todd took us through it. And such were some of you. That's who you used to be. But then you came to know Jesus through the gospel. And what did God do with you? He washed you, He sanctified you, He made you holy. There in 1 Corinthians 6, it's stated in this past tense definitive: God did this when you came to know Jesus. But here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, it means, yeah, to be made holy. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, the word that's used is actually much more of a process oriented word. It's not just talking about a static event that happened in the past, but an ongoing thing that God is seeking to do in our lives. God's will is our ongoing being made holy, our ongoing growth in holiness. So, in other words, when you look back at 1, Th- 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 6, it's to say, what God definitively did when you came to know Jesus is meant to continue to grow, become an increasing characteristic of your life as you walk with Jesus. Do you see that in your life? From the moment, whenever it was, whether it was this morning or 15, 50 years ago, do you see a way in which, yes, you had that awareness, God, you have called me to a different way of living than I did before? And I see a pattern of growth in my life, not perfection, but progress and seeking to please you more and more in areas of my life. That's what Paul says God's will is for all of us. Should you ask the question who you should marry, what career you should pursue, what college you should go to, all those things, where you should retire, which I really do hope many more of you would consider retiring here. Some of the people we invest the most time in just move out of state. It'd be awesome if some of you would consider if God's will for you is to stay here and then seek him, how are we gonna make that work, right? Yeah, we can ask those more personal questions, but understand this. When someone said this to me from this passage when I was a young man. He said, if you want clarity on that more personal aspects of God's will, pursue God's will and the things that are blatantly clear in scripture. Lord, I want to be holy in my conduct, in my lifestyle. And what Paul goes on to give us in the, in the next part of this passage is he gives us three clear markers of what sanctification, ongoing growth and holiness should look like specifically in regard to our sexuality. Look what he goes on to say here. He gives us these three things. Number one, what does holiness look like in our sexuality? It looks like abstaining from sexual immorality. Second one he says there, it looks like learning to control your body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like Gentiles who don't know God. And third, it means you recognize that all sexual sin is against God and against other people. And so you don't want to sin against others. You don't want to wrong or transgress your brother or sister with sexual sin. Let me take a few minutes to walk us through each of these. Again, the first place that Paul says this starts is with this idea that sexual immorality or sexual sanctification looks like abstaining from sexual immorality. That word abstain means to not do. It means to, if this, it goes in this direction, I want to go in a different direction. To keep away from. To abstain from what? From sexual immorality. That's, a, that's this uh, very common word in the New Testament, porneia. It's a blanket term in the New Testament that's used to describe all sexual actions outside of God's intended context between one man and one woman in marriage. This is the way we put it in our doctrinal statement. Any sexual activity outside of monogamous marriage between a man and woman is sin, whether you do it by yourself or with another person or multiple people. If it is not in that context of monogamous faithfulness between a man and woman in marriage, it is sexual immorality. It is a violation of God's good design. But sexual immorality, I would say this, God's will for us is that all of us would abstain from that, to, to move away from that, to go in a different direction. But even if you are married, even if you are within a monogamous marriage between one man and one woman, which is what Bible, the Bible teaches as the definition of marriage, it is still possible to sin sexually in your marriage. Which is why in our doctrinal statement we added this point. Even within marriage, abusive sexu- selfishly motivated sexual activity this is about me and what I can get from you is also a sinful violation of god's design. This includes listen carefully to this. this may be situations you are in, have been in or thinking of being in. This includes the use of power or authority to force one's spouse to engage in sexual activity as well as either partner, regardless of gender, whether the man or the woman withholding sex from their spouse for the purpose of manipulating them. In other words, manipulating one's spouse for sex and using sex to manipulate one's spouse both fail to honor sex between a husband and wife as a holy gift from God. So again, the point is, whether we're talking about sexual sin outside of marriage or sexual sin within marriage, God's will for us is that we would grow in holiness by separating ourselves from all of that, by abstaining, fleeing from all sexual acts that fall outside of God's intended context. Not just because I wanna tell you what to do, but do you believe that God's intention for your sexuality was good and that he intends it to bring good in your life Then seek to use it according to his intention? The second thing that Paul says there in verses four and five, again, is this idea that each one of you know how to control his own body, control his own body, not just your body, but I will say control your actions and appetites and the way you conduct yourself in your body to do so in holiness and honor. We all need that. We all need to grow in sexual self-control because, again, one of the things we said in our doctrinal statement is that all of us, whoever you are, all fallen humans experience attractions and desires and choose to act upon them in ways that are disordered and contrary to God's good intention. The reality is, even the reason why we tried to differentiate in this statement between attractions and desires that are disordered and then the choice to act upon them, is to seek to just give space for the reality that many of the disordered sexual desires and attractions that we experience are not a matter of our choice. We experience them. They occur to us. You may not have a choice over what, which way in which you experience disordered sexual attractions and desires, but listen to me. You do have a choice and a responsibility for what you do with them. So whether you experience attraction to the opposite sex or the same sex, whether you battle or experience strong sexual desires every day, every once in a while, not much at all. The point, hear me on this, because sometimes this is the place where people misconstrue what Christians are arguing for. We're not saying that certain people have to use sexual self-control and the rest of us can just do what we want. The reality of the fall in all of our lives, of sin in all of our lives, is that all of us experience twistedness in our sexual attractions and desires and the temptation to act on them wrongly. That means none of us get to just freely follow our hearts. That will lead any of us into trouble very quickly, which again is why Paul says here, all of us need to learn to control our bodies and direct our desires According to God's good intention. But that's not just a reality when we talk about sex. That's with all of our desires. I mean, think about it. Your desire for food, how often does your desire for food accord with God's good intention for food? How many of you walked past that donut table and experienced temptation that you know is not ultimately for your flourishing? In our choice of entertainment, in our sleeping habits, our working habits, again, If you recognize your need to grow in sexual self-control, don't just focus on the sexual aspect of your life. Consider what it looks like to grow in God-honoring self-control in the rest of your life and maybe you will find like I have that battling sexual temptation isn't really so different from battling a bunch of other kinds of temptation and that learning to honor God in other areas of life in the way that we sleep and work and interact with others and serve our families is directly connected to how we battle sexual temptation. I found that so much in my own life. Notice again here in this passage how Paul addresses the motivation that we should have, the motivation for exercising sexual self-control. He said, what should drive us is the desire for holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust. It's funny, it's that kind of almost redundant in the Greek. Not in the desire for desire. Like this, is unsense, this, this unbridled desire, chasing whatever our fickle hearts want from moment to moment, basically the opposite of operating with self-control. Instead, God says, no, I want you to learn to control your body. How do we do that? Well, maybe you're familiar with this passage in Galatians 5, where it talks about the fruit of the spirit, the outflow of what the spirit does in our lives. And one of the aspects of the fruit of the spirit is self-control. We need him to do this. Again, this is what we said in our doctoral statement as well. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christians are called and enabled. Do you believe that? You are not only called, commanded in scripture to pursue sexual holiness, you are enabled by the Holy Spirit to seek repentance and holiness in your sexuality and then to steward your sexual attractions, desires, and actions Though you may still experience attractions and desires that you know are against God's design you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to say, no, I am going to direct my desires according to what God says is good and trust that it is good and that it is for my blessing. Again, you can already see how much this flies in the face of the way so much of the culture around us operates in our sexuality. The sexual revolution of the 1960s was incredibly successful in winning the majority of our culture over to the notion that basically, hey man, whatever you do in the privacy of your own home, as long as it's between consenting adults, is up to you. Like literally, I think that is the last shred of something that we could call a sexual ethic that most people within the broader society in which we live would agree on. The difference between sexual immorality and just doing what you want comes down to just, is everybody on the same page? Is there consent? Because if everybody's okay with what you're doing, whether it's just one person, or a whole bunch of people, as long as everybody's okay, you're good. Now, please hear me on this. Consent, when we talk about sexuality, consent is essential. It is always wrong. Hear me, it is always wrong, even within marriage between a man and a woman, to force sexual acts upon someone who does not want it. So it's not that consent is unimportant, it's just insufficient. Because we're not only talking about consent, we're talking about intent. We're talking about God's good intent in creating our sexuality. Here's again what it looks like in our doctrinal statement. Within monogamous heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman, each spouse bears the responsibility and privilege, the responsibility and privilege to steward their sexuality in submission to God and for the blessing of their spouse, to honor God and to honor your spouse which means again, you're at best third on that list. You get that. If you have operated in your sexuality, I gotta get what's mine. First, how do I honor God? Because he's the one who designed this and designed it for my good. Second, how do I honor my spouse? And then third... No, there is a way in which when I do that, when I seek to honor, please God and please my spouse, you know what, this is pleasing to me and it doesn't come with all that weird sort of guilt and tension and that comes when we get it wrongly. If in, the, in that matter though, you do not have a spouse, if you are currently in a single situation in your life, well, here's what we'd say on that too. Equally through the power of the Holy Spirit, a celibate single life is not only possible, but is to be equally honored alongside marriage as pleasing to God and essential to the life and witness of the church. We're gonna come back and talk about that more in a few weeks when we have a whole message focused on singleness. But please hear me on this. Sex is never intended to be a gift that you give yourself. You know what I mean by that? It is a gift you are intended to give to your spouse if you have it and if if you have one and if you are not married, you are called and empowered by the Holy Spirit to exercise sexual self-control in celibacy. But again, come back here with me real quick to verse four. Look at the contrast that Paul creates here. On the one hand, he calls followers of Jesus to control our bodies in holiness and honor. But then he creates this contrast between the passion of lust of the Gentiles, the nations, Who do not know God. So, on the one hand, he says, if you know God, exercise sexual self control. If you don't know God, there is only that disorder in following your your fickle heart wherever it may lead. So, let me ask you this which of those two manners of life describes you? Do you know God? Is it demonstrated by the way that you conduct yourself sexually? It should be. It's just, it's, listen, the ones who just follow their hearts wherever go, they don't know God. If you say that you know God, he is empowering and calling you to something fundamentally different. So is that a reality in your life? It is God's will, his stated purpose and goal in your life to develop sexual self-control in you the contrast he creates here also should make it really clear for us who follow Jesus where we should look for guidance on how to conduct ourselves sexually. Or maybe even more, where we should not look. The reality is, what kind of sexual morality should we expect from those who don't know God? Again, if God ultimately is that sun at the center of the solar system, the only one massive enough to keep the rest of life into balance, when God is rejected, what hope is there for balance in any area of our lives, let alone our sexuality? So in one sense, I would say this, even if you're someone who tends to get angsty and bash our culture for all the twisted ways people do things sexually, I would say one thing we should be thankful for, one of the things that I would say is one of the residual effects of the gospel in our increasingly post-Christian culture is how seriously our society takes issues of sexual abuse and violence. We should thank God that that is a serious issue in our society. It could be much worse. They could not care about it. It could get much worse. I mean, think about this with me for a second. If people already find entertainment in watching movies and TV that showed, that depict graphic sexual violence, rape, and so forth, and then celebrate those kind of a shows and lavish awards on them at all these ceremonies, Is it really so far of a step to think that at some point that's not only acceptable as a form of entertainment to watch, but a form of entertainment to engage in? Which again should make us think very carefully if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are making a habit out of seeking entertainment through those kinds of shows, you need to honestly ask yourself is this helping me pursue God's will for my holiness? Or by willingly engaging in this type of entertainment, am I doing the very thing that that Paul talked about in Romans 1? Giving approval to the things that God says are worthy of condemnation. By entertaining myself with sexually explicit, with sexually violent material, am I giving approval to things that God condemns? Ask yourself that, if that is a reality in your life. Ask yourself, can I honestly expect that to lead me toward increasing holiness? Or does the fact that I seek out those kind of things to enjoy make it clear that holiness is really far down on my priority list? This is the will of God for you. This is the will of God for you. Again, my point is, again, not to bash our culture, to make it really clear. If we want to know what sexual holiness looks like, we should not look to the world around us, but the world around us should be able to look at us should be able to look at the way that we conduct ourselves. Now, that's even a weird thing to say, because what does it look like for us as followers of Jesus to make sexual holiness visible? It's even weird to say it, because the reality is the holiness of sex between a husband and wife in marriage means that it needs to stay in private, amen? Just between the two of them. But again, I think Todd touched on this last week, the effects of sexual holiness because sexuality functions at that intersection of so many aspects of our life. When you pursue sexual holiness, the benefits of it, the blessing of it permeates so many other aspects of your life. On the one hand, healthy sexuality in marriage unites a husband and wife even more closely together. It builds a sense of trust and intimacy between them that will have a positive effect on the rest of their life and their relationships, especially their children if they have them. But on the other hand, we can clearly see the way in which sexual sin, even within marriage, doesn't just do damage to that relationship between husband and wife, it ripples through the rest of life, doesn't it? So on the one hand, yes, holy sexuality needs to be carried out in private. But if we pursue this by the will of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, the benefits, the blessing of it will spill out into the rest of our lives and give a clear witness to the world around us of the goodness of God's intent. Which is why, though it's really quiet in here, it is so worthwhile for us to talk about these things as a church family. We need to, we must carry it in private, but be able to talk about it together with entrusted relationships. We need to talk about the goodness of God's intent. We need to talk about how to steward our sexuality, to honor God, to please our spouse. We need to talk about what it looks like to steward sexuality, even in celibacy if you're single. We need to help people in our society and in the church see it as a viable option. But that's not even enough to say that it's viable to be single. It was good enough for Jesus. Not only that, but what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, singleness, celibate singleness for the purpose of making disciples is actually more effective than being married. Do we believe that? We need to talk about it. When you see a young person or even whatever age they are that's single, and you go, wow, you're a really great person, and if your default is to go, why are you not married yet? Hold your tongue. you have just played your hand that you don't believe that singleness is as good as the Bible says. God's will for you is your sanctification, your ongoing growth in believing that what God says is good. Again, we'll talk to that about that more in a couple of weeks. We need to talk about combating sexual temptation. We need to seek counsel and support for the effects of sexual sin. We need to learn to celebrate every small victory as people within our church family get serious about pursuing holiness in our sexuality. We need to pray for each other, watch out for each other. Because again, the last thing that Paul says here in First Thessalonians, if it's gonna move, maybe not, go. Okay, go one more. There it is. Not only abstain from sexual morality, not only learn to control your body, but not sin against one another, not wrong or transgress a brother or sister. Why? Listen to me. If you've tuned out, turn back in. Because God is the avenger in all these things. He himself will get vengeance. Do you know what that means? It means regardless of whether you've never even thought about how God applies to your sexuality. God always takes it personally when you misuse the gift of sex that he gave you and mistreat someone else, whether that's taking advantage of them, violating your spouse's trust, or simply sinning sexually with a willing partner. God is the avenger in these things. He will get justice. You will, listen to me, you will have to answer to him directly for how you have misused his gift and mistreated another person. This is meant to be a sober warning to us. That's what Paul says, as we told you and solemnly warned you about beforehand. But if you have been victimized, abused, taken advantage of sexuality, there's actually an incredible hope for you in this verse too. No matter how helpless you felt in that situation, how helpless you might feel even now, you have an avenger. And it is the risen and exalted Jesus. He sees all, he knows all, he will bring perfect justice one day. You can run to him. Amen? You can run to him for safety, for protection, for healing, for wholeness. You can bring what has been hidden in darkness into light. You can bring confrontation. You can involve the authorities, if need be, to seek justice and safety. Don't do it on your own. We would love, as your church family, to help you pursue safety and justice by God's grace. But again, I love what Shannon said at the beginning. The grace of God extends not only to the victims of sexual abuse, but to the abusers themselves. Do you believe that? That God is, God's grace is that radical, that scandalous? I wouldn't do that, which is why I'm so glad I'm not in charge of distributing God's grace. God's grace extends to the abusers. If that has been you, if that is you right now, run to Jesus for mercy, for deliverance. Don't stay there. You may still face consequences from the law. You may deal with fallout in your relationships, but hear me, that all of that, however bad that might get, is nothing compared to what you will face when you stand before God one day if you do not run to him now for mercy. But if you come to Jesus, if you acknowledge your sin with all of the grossness of it, you will find that this same Jesus who is the avenger in all these things is also the forgiver of all these things that his death, his resurrection is sufficient even for you to make you new. Run to him. The last thing Paul says in this passage, he says, don't disregard. Whoever disregards how serious sexual holiness is, disregards not man, not prudish traditional culture with its tight constraints. You're disregarding God, the one who made, you, who made your sexuality You're also disregarding one of the biggest reasons why he gave his Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit is in you to affect your transformation. Look again, look again at how committed our God is to our transformation. Maybe not, maybe we won't look again. There we go. God's will is our sanctification. He's called us to control our bodies in holiness. He has called us not for impurity, but in holiness. He's given us his Holy Spirit. Do you think holiness is a big deal to God? It is what he has purpose to do in your life. It is what he is working toward. It is why he has given given you his Holy Spirit. If it's what God wants and what he's working toward, is it what you want? Is it what you're working toward? Even if you feel so defeated over years and years of struggling with sexual sin and temptation... Even if you've given up hope that change is possible for you, let me say this. If you truly have come to God by faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is within you. And if the Holy Spirit is within you because this is the will of God, change is not only possible, it is inevitable. Do not lose hope. The will of God is your holiness. And if there's one thing we see clearly from the beginning to end of scripture, God gets what he wants. When God wants something, he gets it. Despite all opponents, all obstacles, all the things we put in the way, God's will is your holiness and your sexuality. The third person of the Trinity lives within you. Let's not shrink back from this. Let's not disregard it. Let's not be discouraged. Let's pursue this because if we do, I do think that there will be radical transformation in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our singleness. This is the will of God, amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you taught us to pray to our Father in heaven. May your name be holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done. Would you give us that posture? Even if right now we feel so trapped and enslaved in sexual sin and temptation, Would it at least even start there to say, Lord, if this is what you want for me, I want it too. If this is what you are working toward in my life, I want to work with you, not against you. May your will be done in our lives so that your glory may be displayed through us, even in this private way that has such public effects of our sexuality. Thank you for the good gift you intended it to be. Forgive us, Lord, for all the ways we've tweaked it and twisted it and still do. Would you right us? Would you straighten us out? Would you give us eyes to see the goodness of what you've created and to take steps of faith even today toward it? We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.